Shive with a message. All right. Well, good morning, TBA. How are y'all this morning? Good. Awesome. That's fantastic. Well, it's great to be with you here this morning as we close out our summer series on the Gospel of Mark. Summer is over when school starts. Parents, aren't you excited? Man, I don't know about you, but I am. I'm so glad. I know the students love it, but I'm so glad that school starts because we get back into routine. No more crazy staying up to four o'clock at night playing Fortnite. All right. So last week, Stivey talked about the death and suffering of Jesus on the cross. And the cross is a huge focal point of our faith. The cross is what made, us, made a way for us to access the throne room of God. The cross is what gives us right standing with God and allows us to stand in his presence. The cross is what allows for the forgiveness of our sins and it replaces our sins with a relationship with our creator. But as great as the cross is, it wouldn't mean anything without the resurrection. And so as we come to the end of Mark, we come to this powerful climax of everything that Mark has written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. See, Mark's gospel is not just this random collection of facts and ideas or stories, but it has a specific plan and purpose. And this central event of the, of the climax, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is also the central event of, of God's redemptive history. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. And everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we hope is based on its reality. See, there would be no Christianity if there was no resurrection. The message of Scripture has always been a message of resurrection hope, a message that death isn't the end for those who belong to God. For those of us who trust in Christ, death has never been the end. It's simply a doorway that leads to eternity with God. And that's been the promised hope of God's people throughout history, a hope that's built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's his resurrection that guarantees our resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection, the life, and whoever believes in me shall live even if he dies. Because I live, you shall also live. So let's look at our passage this morning. If you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, pull it up on your phone, and let's read God's word together. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived and they looked up, they saw the stone, which was, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw this young man clothed in white robes, sitting on the right side. And the women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for the Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter. Now I want you to hold on to the including Peter part. We'll get to that in a minute. But go tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. So let's set the scene a little bit. Right before this, Jesus had just been crucified on a cross. He had completed all that was required of him by God, and he breathes his last breath, and he dies. And his body's taken down and quickly put in the tomb on Friday 
because the Sabbath is the next day. They didn't have time to actually prepare his body for burial. They just put it in the tomb really quick because the Sabbath is coming. And the disciples are scattered and despondent. They think everything's over. Their Messiah is dead. And even though Jesus plainly told them what was going to happen, they didn't get it. That's why the women go back to the tomb on Sunday to anoint Jesus' body with burial spices. Because they expected Jesus' body to decay and rot, to stay in the grave. They certainly didn't expect Jesus to be resurrected to life. And so they're greatly surprised when they arrive and they find that he isn't there. And once this news that Jesus is alive is made known, well, it changes everything. It changes everything for the disciples, for the religious leaders. It changes everything for the whole world. It changes things for you and me. What does the resurrection mean to you? How does it change the way that you view things? Because this isn't just a story or a fairy tale. The evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming. I find it difficult that anyone can deny the resurrection with the amount of evidence that there is, not only in the Bible, but the fact that he appeared to over 500 people over a 40-day period before his ascension. But people have and continue to deny it. But ultimately, whether you believe it or not, the resurrection changes everything about our place in this world, and it has meaning to all of humankind. For the chief priests and the religious leaders, it meant everything that Jesus claimed was true. That Jesus' credibility is confirmed, and their condemnation is set. Look at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 62. It says, The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate, and they told him, Sir, we remember what the deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. And Pilate replies, take the guards, secure it as best as you can. So they sealed the tomb and they posted guards to protect it. So the fear of the disciples stealing Jesus' body is totally unfounded because the disciples still did not believe that he would literally rise from the dead. It wasn't that they didn't believe or understand the meaning of resurrection because that was a commonly held belief among Jews of the day. But because they could not conceive of their Messiah dying, they obviously couldn't conceive of him rising from the dead. But I think that the posting of the guards was God's way of making the religious leaders face the reality of the resurrection because there was no way they could deny it in this scenario. The guards were there when the women arrived. They saw what the women saw. They experienced what the women experienced at the tomb. And they go back and they report it to the priests in Matthew 28. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what happened. A meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say that Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and stole his body. And if the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and they said what they were told to say. And their story spread wildly among the Jews and they still tell it today. See, the soldiers' news brings alarm, fear, and confusion to the religious leaders. But it didn't bring repentance or faith. See, they were without excuse. They were informed of the resurrection, and they did not try to deny it. 
Their only concern was to keep the news from the fellow Jews, fearing that many of them would accept him as Messiah and their own influence, power, and wealth would be severely diminished. See, unbelievers of all generations have to deal with the problem of the Lord's claim to be Messiah, the Son of God. Because when you're faced with the knowledge of the resurrection, a decision has to be made. It has to be made. Now, we can rationalize it away and reject the idea of the resurrection and all other supernatural elements of Scripture because those things can't be explained by scientific observation and human reasoning. Or we can be indifferent to it, not caring whether it's true or not, which is where I think a lot of people sit today. They're too concerned with their own affairs to contemplate the ramifications of a risen Savior. Or we can be intentionally hostile to it. See, there are those that don't reject the resurrection because it seems unprovable to human reason or because they have honest doubt or lack of proof. They denounce it simply because they hate the things of God and they love their own sin too much. But despite the fact that the resurrection is man's only hope for eternal life, the majority of people, including many who have studied it thoroughly, have rejected it. And in doing so, they not only forfeit the future life and eternity that they could have, but they're left without any true meaning or significance in this life. See, rejecting the resurrection is spiritual suicide. What does the resurrection mean to you? For Peter, it meant restoration and forgiveness. If you remember, Peter's last interaction with Jesus before his death was to deny him three times. Peter, the guy who said, I will die for you, Lord. I'll do anything for you. Peter abandons him when he's needed the most. I can imagine the guilt and shame that Peter was carrying. Have you ever been there in that place? Have you ever done something so bad that you didn't think there was a way back from it? That God wouldn't take you back? I have. I felt that way a lot. And I believe that's where Peter is. I would imagine knowing that Jesus was alive brought him a mixed bag of emotions. I mean, on one hand, he's very excited and he's happy. Jesus is alive. That's awesome. But on the other hand, he's probably wondering where he sits with the Lord now. So he's carrying all this guilt and shame of his denial. And he thinks the Lord is done with him because of what he's done. And so much so that he goes back to being a fisherman. And Jesus knows this. That's why the angel says, go tell the disciples, including Peter. Including Peter. Because Jesus knew that if Peter was going to play this crucial role in the early church that he had chosen for him to play, he needed to be restored. Peter, Peter needed to understand that although he had forsaken Christ, Christ hadn't forsaken him. But since his denials were public knowledge, he needed to be publicly restored. The other disciples needed to hear Peter's reaffirmation of his love for Jesus and Jesus' recommissioning of him so that they'd be willingly and loyally support his leadership. Look at how this discourse goes in John chapter 20. In verse 15, it says, After breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything, you know 
that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. See, Jesus is saying to Peter, do you choose to love me over everything else? Do you choose to love me when it requires you to do what you don't feel like doing? Do you love me regardless of the circumstances that surround your life? Because that's what I need. That's what I need, somebody who's going to feed my lambs. See, Jesus uses one word for love, but Peter uses another word. Jesus uses the word agape, which is the highest form of love, the love of God himself. But Peter did not reply, yes, Lord, I agape you. He said, yes, Lord, I philo you. That is, I love you like a brother. That's what philo love is. It's brotherly love. Peter feels unworthy to claim agape love with the Lord. Jesus is saying, Peter, are you willing to sacrifice all of it for me? An agape kind of love, because agape love is sacrificial love. And Peter says, Lord, you know you're my friend. We're close. I have feelings for you. And so Jesus asked him a, sep- a second time, Peter, do you agape love me? I need agape love from you, Peter. Peter says, Lord, I have philo. I have philo love for you. And so Jesus asks him a third time. But this time he says, Simon, son of John, do you philo me? Do you really philo me? And this time Jesus brings into question Peter's philo love for him. And Peter's hurt by the question. And I think Jesus is trying to show Peter that why philo love is good, having feelings is good, but it isn't enough. Because feelings fail us. Feelings are in our own strength. Feelings don't always follow through when things get tough. Peter didn't have very much fila when he denied Christ. And I think that's the point he's trying to make to Peter. He's telling him it's got to be agape, Peter. It's got to be sacrificial because you're going to be called upon to demonstrate agape love, the sacrificial love of God, because Peter was called to die for Christ, to give his life preaching the love of God to those who didn't care for it and those who reacted violently against it. And so through this discord, Jesus gives Peter a chance to reaffirm his love three times, just as he denied him three times. And I believe that's on purpose. And through this, Peter is reminded that he's not only forgiven, but he's restored back to the position and purpose that God has for him. And Peter spends the rest of his life, the, the, the next three decades of his life, serving the Lord, anticipating his martyrdom. And yet he faces the prospect of his own death with confidence comforted by the knowledge that he will never deny the Lord again, but instead will glorify him in his death. What does the resurrection mean to you? For Thomas, it means an end to doubting and a start to being fully committed. Look at John chapter 20. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, well, I'm not going to believe it. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. And I put my fingers in them, and I placed my hand in the wound in his side. And then eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus is standing among them. And he says, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer, Thomas. Believe. 
Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. See, Thomas had been with the disciples when Jesus first appeared to them. I'm sorry, Thomas had not been with the disciples when Jesus first appeared to them, and he defiantly refused to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, the disciples told him the truth. They told him what they had witnessed. The Greek translation actually says they kept on telling him, but Thomas became stubborn and obstinate in his unbelief. He even argues against their testimony. He argues with such deep intensity, so much so that his response is, I'm not going to believe it unless I touch Jesus. Unless I touch the wounds in his hands and on his side, I'm not going to believe it. So what was it that frustrated Thomas so much and caused him to react the way that he did? I think it's because Thomas was in a similar place that Peter was. He had forsaken the Lord. I mean, he didn't deny it like Peter did, but nevertheless, he abandoned Jesus at the cross. And with that came guilt and shame, and it caused him to withdraw from the other disciples. Thomas withdrew. And with this news of resurrection, Thomas is consumed with guilt all over again. And he starts to become critical of, his body, of this body of believers who are speaking truth into his life. He starts to be critical to them, even though it's his own fault. But like we often do, we often blame others in the midst of our own pain and our own shame. And he has this critical spirit. And it keeps him be, from being fully committed. And he holds on to this critical spirit for eight days, unwilling to face the truth of the resurrection. Because if it's true... I mean, if it's true for Thomas, if, he, if Jesus is really alive, well, that means Thomas has to make a decision. He has to settle in his mind where his heart truly lies. And I think fear and shame and guilt and a host of other things cause him to drag his feet. I mean, how many of us have been where Thomas was, dragging our feet, distracted by our own circumstances, unwilling to face the truth and accept what the Lord has for our lives? Or how many of us withdraw from this church body, from the body of Christ, because when truth is presented to us by our brothers and sisters, we're not ready to accept that truth. And so we withdraw. How many of us are sitting on the sidelines afraid of what it would mean to be all in? I mean, what would it be, mean to be all in for you? To give everything to the Lord. Are you afraid of that? Are you afraid of what the Lord has for you? See, sometimes I think when we drag our feet, the Lord puts us in a position where we're forced to make a decision like Thomas was. Jesus appears to the disciples when Thomas is there, and he challenges and convicts Thomas. He says immediately to Thomas, because he knew what Thomas's unbelief was. He knew what Thomas's demands were. And so he uses the same words that Thomas used. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hand. Put your hand in, my, in the wound of my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Stop doubting. Jesus warned and called for belief. See, Thomas was walking a dangerous road. The disciples had witnessed to him time and time again, and he refused to accept the truth that was in front of him. And Jesus says to him, you're running the risk of becoming faithless and unbelieving. You've carried your belief unbelief too far. It's time to stop all this foolishness. And it's in that moment when he's confronted by Jesus that Thomas recognizes 
that Jesus accepts no halfway commitments. Jesus expected to be his Lord and God fully committed. No part-time involvement, no half-heartedness. Jesus expected Thomas's whole life, every single part of it. And so Thomas submits his heart to Jesus and claims, my Lord, my God, what does the resurrection mean to you? To the two disciples on their way to Emmaus, it means a passion and purpose restored. If you remember the story, Jesus helps these two ordinary people who had lost, and, lost hope and fallen into the pit of sadness and despair. He helped them find their passion and purpose again. These two disciples who were either present at the crucifixion or at least heard the news about the death of Jesus make their way back to Emmaus. And they're gripped with sadness and despair and fear over the Lord's crucifixion. Their hope that Jesus was the promised Messiah has been shattered. And they've lost their passion and their purpose. And Jesus appears to them, although they don't recognize him. And he begins to walk with them. And he begins to go through the scriptures with them. And he begins to explain to them from the beginning to the end why the Messiah had to die. And as they get to Emmaus, they ask Jesus to come in and eat with them. And they sit down to eat, and he takes bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And suddenly, their eyes are opened, and they recognize him. And in that moment, Jesus disappears. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within that hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said the Lord has really risen. He, he appeared to Peter. So you have these two guys who are completely devastated by the circumstances of all that is going on in their life and it blinds them to the truth of Jesus. So much so that they can't even see him when he's standing right in front of them. It robs them of their passion that they had for the Messiah before the crucifixion. But then Jesus uses scripture, he uses the word of God, and these two disciples experience a burning conviction within their hearts, and their passion is restored. Their purpose is now clear, so much so that they leave in the middle of the night and immediately go back to Jerusalem to report what happened to the rest of the disciples. What does the resurrection mean to you? For me, it means a number of undeniable truths that are the foundation of my faith. It means that the word of God is totally true and reliable. It means that Jesus Christ is the son of God as he claimed to be, and that he has the power over life and death. It means that salvation is complete, that on the cross, Christ conquered sin, death, and hell, and he rose victoriously. And because of that, because of that, I have hope of eternal life. And the resurrection brings the ability to overcome sin in this life and to walk victorious with Jesus. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're like the chief priests and the religious leaders, unwilling to accept the truth of a risen Savior. Listen, if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, you're denying the truth of the resurrection. Because if you believe in the re resurrection, you have to accept Christ. If you're unwilling to give your life to Christ, my, my question for you is why? With all the evidence that sits before you, what holds you back from accepting Jesus as your Savior? 
He died for you. He suffered for you. He gave everything for you. He has proven his love. He has proven his faithfulness to you. And he desires a relationship of love with you. Listen, if you've never called on the name of Jesus to be saved, man, don't leave this place without doing that. Don't leave this place without knowing where your eternal destination lies. You can do it right now. You can do it today. You can do it in your seat. There's no special ceremony. There's no class you need to take. You, all you have to do is acknowledge your sin before God, ask him to forgive you, and then ask Jesus to come into your life as, as your Lord and Savior, that you're going to follow him for the rest of your life. That's all it is. Maybe you're like Peter, and you've got all this guilt and shame that you've been carrying for a long time. And you feel guilty and shameful for the things that you've done in your life. And you no longer know where you're standing with the Lord is. I can tell you where it's at. I can tell you easily you're forgiven. Because a humble, repentant heart always brings forgiveness. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. You hear me? There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There's no line that is crossed that you cannot return from. Listen, we all have darkness inside of us. And we've all, me included, have committed great offense before the Lord. But James says, confess your sins and find healing. So you don't have to carry this burden of guilt and shame. That is the power of the resurrection. Christ overcame so you can overcome as well. Maybe you're like Thomas. Maybe you're withdrawing from this church body because there's truth that you don't want to face. Or maybe you're doubting and sitting on the sidelines. What are you waiting for? Now's the time to jump all in. See, our God isn't a part-time God. Our God is not a part-time God. He isn't a genie in a bottle to be brought out in times of need or distress. He is a jealous God who desires all of your life. And he wants to be first in every single thing that you do. What holds you back from that? Man, don't wait for your circumstances in life to change, to be all in for God. Be all in today. Commit yourself wholeheartedly today to the Lord. Or maybe you're like the two disciples from Emmaus. Your circumstances have taken away your passion and your purpose. Well, you're in luck. Now is the time to dig into God's word. We're starting the F260 plan this week, and I'm telling you, it's going to be amazing. God is going to do amazing things through his church who seeks his face on a daily basis. Press into him. Dig into his word. Be in his presence. Trust his plan for your life. Stop letting your circumstances dictate your priorities, because that's what we do. Let God be the one who determines your priorities. Let God be the one that determines your purpose and your passion in life. Band, you guys can come up. Wherever you are today, I want you to know this. The same power that rose Christ from the dead, that same resurrection power lives within us. Paul said in Romans that we have the same resurrection power in us to overcome the sinful nature within us. So what does the resurrection mean to you? Do you believe that God can heal your broken heart? Do you believe that God can forgive you?
Do you believe that he can mend your marriage, deliver you from addiction, provide for your family? Do you believe that he can meet any need that you have and that he can get you through any struggle you face? I do. I believe it. And I believe he can do it in your life if you will allow him. So the band's going to get ready to play and this is a time for you to respond to God if God is leading, leading you to respond. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying do what God puts on your heart. If you need prayer, there are those back at Next Steps that can pray with you. If you need to spend time in confession before the Lord, you can come up here to the altar and pray. If you just want to spend time with God, come up here and pray. If you need somebody to talk to you about anything, I'll be back there at Next Steps. You can come and talk with me there. However God leads you, respond as the music plays. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and the truth and the power that comes in knowing that you rose from the dead, Lord, that you overcame death, God, that you overcame hell. And you did that for us, Lord, so that we could overcome as well. God, help us to live in the power of your resurrection, the power that lives within us. God, help us not to be the same, to be changed by the power of your resurrection, that our lives would be resurrected to live for you in all that we do. We love you. It's in Jesus' name.